0: Why concern ourselves so much about our beans for seed, and not be concerned at all about a new generation of men? We should really be fed and cheered if, when we met a man, we were sure to see that some of the qualities which I have named, which we all prize more than those other productions, but which are for the most part broadcast and floating in the air, had taken root and grown in him. I couldn't help but think of this quote from Henry David Thoreau's Walden when I was producing this episode because in this section on seeds and gardening, Thoreau compares the seeds that we sow in gardens to the seeds of character that we sow in children. I'm Joël charriere and you're listening to Disconnect, the Outdoor Education Podcast. On today's episode, you'll be hearing an interview with Megan Zenny, the classroom gardener. And I really have to admit, this is one of the most stimulating educational discussions that I've had in a very long time. It was probably my favorite episode to produce so far, and Megan dropped just so many gems into the talk that I've had to listen to it a number of times to extract them, and every time I listen, I catch new detail. Frankly, I was worried the interview wouldn't happen. Uh, having scheduled it very close to my wife's due date. um, She actually went into labor two hours after I wrapped up this interview and listening to it now, two weeks after the fact, and with new life in my hands. Everything Megan said resonates even more as I'm faced for a third time with the opportunity to shape a person. Let's be real, though. As educators, whether it be in the school system or in a camp setting, we are always gifted the opportunity to shape minds and minds. And with great power comes great responsibility. I won't try to pretend that I'm not a comic book fan, I was growing up. And some of you might remember that phrase from Spider-Man. It actually can be traced back to the French Revolution, La Révolution Française. Anyhow, today's interview ran on for a long time. It was like I said, it was a great, great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So I won't be talking too much. I'll leave you with the interview. This is Megan Zenny, the Classroom Gardener, giving us a glimpse into her 20 years of experience as a teacher in an outdoor classroom. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us today. Now, last episode, we, te- we took a long time to talk about small steps in getting started. So you call yourself the Classroom Gardener. This is obviously the culmination of... Lots of small steps that amounted to you becoming this. How did you become the Classroom Gardener? Uh,
1: So the Classroom Gardener is a a project that I work on with um, some other school garden um, enthusiasts. Uh, And I had started teaching in my school garden over the years. A lot of people had been asking for some advice, some tips, some help. And then it eventually sort of emerged, the blog emerged, and then there were some workshops that came out of it, and I don't know, the classroom gardener just kind of took on its own life. So I teach now, my current position is in my children's public school. I teach in their school. I gave up my enrolling position, and now I teach entirely outdoors in the school garden. So when I'm outside all day, and then when the children have their prep in the elementary schools in BC, we have 55 minutes of prep. For the teachers twice a week mm-hmm. uh, and so when those kids are on their prep or the teachers are on their prep the kids come with me and we go out to the garden so it's a nice use of prep time and
0: so you just- exclusively take over other classes or do you have your own classroom
1: not anymore. So I used to be an enroll. For 20 years, I taught my own class of kids in the school garden, and we yeah. did a lot of work in the garden. And then um, when this prep or relief position, as it's often called, became available at the school, I just pitched to the principal. I said, would it be possible to just do prep in the garden? And so because we're on the West Coast, we can be out there all year round. There's less work that we do in the Garden during the sort of November, December, January periods, but yeah, tell you, we learn in the garden year round. For
0: sure. And so, when you had your own classroom, and you say you you taught outside the entire time,
1: uh, a lot of the year, yep, for sure. Did you have a physical a space
0: things. indoors that you had access to if the yes. weather got okay?
1: I did. When I had my own class, I had a physical classroom, and then we just it just was beneficial for the kids. I found that the students I was working with responded really well to being outdoors, and um. Yeah. But now I do not actually have an indoor space. Now I'm totally 100% outdoors.
0: That's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Anyways, I I really wanted to talk to you about your 10 tips for teaching outside of the classroom. Uh, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I'm going to put a link down in the description for people who want to check out Megan's blog and her website. Uh, The 10 tips is actually taken directly from her site, but I wanted to take some time and kind of break them apart a little further with her here with us Uh, your first tip is what is your why I feel like this is something I've heard a hundred times I I teach in a high school I teach nine through 12 and we began the year last year with a TED talk about what is your why I know lots of other people in other jurisdictions who apparently saw the same TED talk about what is your why what does it mean to you
1: Yeah, so sometimes depending on where teachers are teaching, um, they can bump up against resistance for taking kids and curriculum outdoors. And so I think getting really clear on why you as an educator, as a professional, want to teach outside is really important to your process. So that when you bump up against either an administration person, a principal, a vice principal, um, a colleague, a parent, somebody who starts pushing back a little bit and saying, well, math really is taught best from a textbook, or uh, it's raining today and kids can't go outside in the rain. Those (laughs) kinds of yeah, but statements need to be really clearly, uh, you have to put really clear parameters around why you are teaching outdoors and why that is such an important part of your pedagogical process. So that um, you just, you just have less, questions and you tend to attract more enthusiasm for the work that you're doing if you are really clear on why you want to be teaching outside.
0: Yeah. And that, that follows up beautifully, I think, into your second tip. And, you know, I think all of us, at least all the people listening to this episode, definitely feel strongly about teaching outside. But uh, you're right. We, we sometimes don't know necessarily how to uh, respond to that resistance that we sometimes meet. And so I guess knowing the the pedagogy behind it, knowing the science behind it, and knowing the benefits of it, it really kind of gives you that opportunity to to follow up, like you said, and, and, and be, I guess, have more clout in when you try to, to describe this. And it was your second tip is to know what the benefits are. In your research and in your experience, what are the benefits that you've seen?
1: Yeah, so this is different than the why in some ways, because for some Teachers, it's important just that they feel better outside, right? So if you feel better and less stressed being outdoors um, in light of COVID, if a teacher is feeling a lot of anxiety and stress about being inside with students all day, if it's If your why is because you don't want to be inside with children all day, then that's good enough, right? You really only need one clear, solid reason why you want to teach outdoors. Mm -hmm. But knowing the benefits for kids, which is tip number two, is also really important. And there's a mountain of global research that exists that exposes the benefits of playing and learning outdoors for children. Um, Especially, I'm in the elementary school context. So in our schools, we are kindergarten through grade seven. Um, A lot of the research that we see in that space really um, clearly accentuates the improvement in cognitive abilities for children. So Mm -hmm. if we are teaching academic content indoors and we're teaching the same academic content outdoors, uh, children will have a more meaningful engagement and a more... they're better able to apply concepts that they've learned when they've learned it in a hands-on way. And when they're outdoors, their vocabulary is enriched that sort of whole body experiential learning um, can often lead to improved attendance at school because it transforms children's experiences and attitudes towards learning. Um, So we have a lot of kids that tend to show an increase um, in attention to non preferred tasks when they come back inside after being outdoors um, there's a huge shift in power dynamics when you teach outside with children. So mm. that goes back to tip number one on getting clear on why. My biggest number one why for me is the improvement in relationships with students. So uh those of us who have worked with some children who can be challenging sometimes, um, being outdoors really diffuses and uh redefines the relationship between the adult and the student and sort of introduces a third. Um, teacher which is the environment and the place where you are so the garden or the schoolyard or the farm or wherever you're teaching the forest yeah. um, that becomes um, a, a, um, a, an educator in that in that in that relationship and so being outdoors um you know I can go on the list <laughs> we've got and you know yeah. we've got reductions in obesity for children we've got um more equitable access to learning so when we think about children who really struggle with making their learning visible through the written process um, being outdoors and being able to work in a hands-on way and show their learning um in alternative ways is really equitable and really motivating for students Um, and really when you think about like we've evolved as a species to learn outside over you know the millennium we certainly, it's only in the last maybe 150 years that we've put children inside rooms with, you know, fluorescent lighting has only been even really recently and said, here, listen to me while I talk at you and you're going to learn. Something. <laughs> yeah. We've, we I, I to learn. yeah, I appreciate that.
0: I'm reminded of a study that I read. Shoot, it must have been, oh man, probably 13 years ago. This is when I was doing my my first kick at the can when I went to university and uh, it was an article called How to Fix Boys and kind of discussing the lower general outcomes of boys in elementary schools. And I can't help but wonder that, you know, getting boys outside helps them learn. And I've seen this at the high school level. I have kids in my classroom who show up for outdoor ed and, and they're fantastic students and meanwhile i hear from colleagues all these horror stories about you know behavioral issues or their attendance issues all sorts of things and and they're simply not not an issue in my classroom has nothing to do with me um it's just the the context so i i mean yeah everything like you said you could go on forever here um i'm i'm dumbfounded though and and, like i will be the first to say i have so much admiration for people who teach elementary i taught k-8 to for six months and I vowed I would never teach again I I actually left the profession for a while and I ended up coming back to teaching later Um, so you say that you bring your classroom outside or at least when you had a classroom you brought them outside all the time now you actually don't even have a physical space how do you deal with inclement weather which is actually your next tip preparing for all the weather how do you deal with inclement weather
1: yeah so we're on the west coast, so. We don't get really cold temperatures, but we do get a lot of rain. So being ready to go outside every day is a big part of our preparation and making sure that kids are um, ready to learn outdoors. So um, we had to work really hard as a school to communicate to families that being outdoors was a normal part of the school day. Mm -hmm. Um, And so recess and lunch, we, over the years, were able to reframe what an inside recess would be. Um, We have very, very few inside recess lunches or recesses at our school because simply it starts to undermine the work that we're doing if um, somebody somewhere in the school decides that it's a little bit drizzly out and we're going to have an inside recess. And then I show up after recess and say, okay, well, get dressed because we're going outside. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so as a school, we had to make a decision that there would be no inside recess or lunch unless it was really almost becoming hazardous. Um, so if we have like thunder or lightning, we stay in, uh, we've had coyotes on the field. We have to stay in. There's a few, I can't count on one hand every year, the number of times we actually have to stay inside, but we go out every day in all the weather, even when it's raining sideways. Um, and so it, what we do is we really communicate a lot with families that the children go outside, twice a day every day and sometimes three times a day and that really helps parents realize that they need to be preparing their children to go outside it's not just a lot of teachers in elementary you'll see them talk about like forest friday or wilderness wednesdays and they'll have this sort of once a week kind of thing where they go outside Mm -hmm. um it's really easy for families to forget that it's the day that they're going to be outside and so they don't have their boots they don't have their pants or they don't have whatever they need um so every day at school we go outside
0: and so this this sounds like it was a school-wide initiative then
1: Uh, It eventually became that. Yeah, it started just with my group and then we sort of made it more of a full school. When I was teaching just my own class, um, it wasn't a full school program. Um, But then when I took the prep position, most of the children at some point have been through the program. And so Mm -hmm. working with the entire school community to sort of shift that idea of being outdoors is a normal part of the school day. Uh, definitely is a whole school process that took a lot of years, a lot of relationship building, a lot of communication with our admin and our parents, mm. and you know even with colleagues. Because the truth is, it's the adults that don't want to do recess <laughs> duty in the rain, right? It's 100%. not the kids. Kids are, <laughs> kids are super happy to go like jump in puddles, right? They don't yeah. care. Uh, it's the adults that don't want to go out on duty in the recess, you know, in the rain, right?
0: So yeah. Okay, so I- I'm going to just kind of veer off here. We've been talking about your tips. We'll get back to your tips, but I'm curious about the garden. What is this garden like? Do you guys? provide food for anybody from this garden? Or is it just kind of like uh, perennials, annuals, flowers? Like, what are we talking about here?
1: All of that. So um, it's, pretty large we it fluctuates year to year some years we sort of take out certain beds and this year with COVID we pulled out a number of beds and just made big pumpkin fields um because we weren't we had to change our planting plans because in March we weren't coming back after spring break and at that time we didn't know if we'd even be back in June which Mm -hmm. it turned out we were we came back to school in June Mm -hmm. um and in the end I was teaching our students we had um our complex and vulnerable learners were offered positions in the school in April and May. And so we had um, about 15 or 16 kids that we were working with every day at the school. So mm-hmm. I ended up working through April, May, and June. But at the time when we were making planting decisions, we were there's a lot of uncertainty. So uh, we do plant food. Uh, we usually plant more than we did this year. But um, because of all the uncertainty, we sort of stuck with crops that would be ready to harvest in the fall so we're going to have a nice big bumper crop of squash this year oh beautiful um and we've got some corn in there and we planted some of our space tomatoes that's a whole other blog post you can read all about our space tomatoes uh because they're harvested in september um so we have to be really strategic about what we're planting and when so that we can be harvesting it in September, Mm -hmm. Uh, we have lots of other perennial crops that we harvest throughout the school year. So for example, rhubarb is harvested during the school year Mm -hmm. and we grow a lot of asparagus, which is also harvested during the school year. Um, We have grapes that are harvested in, in the fall. We have apples that are harvested in the fall. Um, we have figs that are harvested in the fall. So oh. we just try to look for uh, perennial crops that we can continue to harvest from year over year. And then we sort of fill in with our annuals. Like we plant a lot of peas and a lot of carrots and mm-hmm. we usually plant a lot of potatoes. We didn't do potatoes this year, um, usually because we harvest those at the end of June. Yeah, um, We planted garlic. We just harvested that last week. We went Ooh, in and- delicious. All the kids and plant- harvested that because we plant that in the fall. That went in in October. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's like a little small farm and then we have a pollinator garden we have quite a large pollinator garden actually where we um, attract all of our different bumblebee species and butterflies and we're part of the David Suzuki butterfly way so I have got blog posts on all that too you can read all about that if you want on the
0: yeah yeah so how big is this garden like by the sounds of it you're running a full farm here
1: (laughs) it's about 30 garden beds Um, so and then we have a large play area as well say oh i'm terrible you know i've never actually fully measured it i'd say it's probably half an acre maybe it's pretty big yeah
0: no kidding that's huge that's uh that's about half of our entire schoolyard and i would never be allowed to do anything like that because half of that school the other half of that schoolyard would be the other half of the football field forget about (laughs) that Anyways, back to your tips. Your next one is about inverting your planning. And this one, to be oh, honest, yeah. I didn't even understand just the, like, the topic, the invert your planning. I had to read through it to, to fully understand it. Can you explain what you mean here by inverting your planning?
1: Yeah. So when you invert your planning, what it means is when when elementary school teachers sit down to do their planning for the week or the next day or whatever they're planning for, um, my tip to them is to ask themselves, what about this lesson it has to be done inside? And so unless you're using some really sensitive, you know, technical equipment, um, chances are pretty good that whatever you're planning to do, you can just do it outside. And so for a lot of teachers, that's a really good entry into starting to teach outdoors and that transition to where learning happens and thinking about other places. So if a teacher is doing a read aloud, for example, that's really easily done outside. Um, if you are going to be doing some art, for example, art is amazing outdoors because then the mess stays outside, right? You Mm -hmm. don't have all the glue and the glitter and all the other stuff to clean up inside your classroom. You leave it outside. Um, there's lots of ways that we can just sort of invert our planning because a lot of teachers start to struggle in teaching outdoors when they say, well, I don't really know what to do when I'm outside. Like they worry about I don't call it outdoor education What I do. I call it the outdoor classroom because a lot of teachers hear outdoor education and they think, oh, I went to camp and it was cold and it was wet and I didn't know how to tie a knot. And I don't. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Actually. And DC is one of the few provinces that has like a full outdoor education curriculum. I'm quite familiar with it. It, It's kind of, yeah. So we don't, I mean, we do
1: some of that. We do touch on some of those skills, but for the most part, we are, teaching math and science and literacy and, um, art and ADST skills and all of the, um, curricular big ideas and, and those core and curricular competencies, we are Mm -hmm. teaching those, but we're doing it outside. Um, and so when a teacher sits down to say, well, I want to take these kids outside, but I don't know what to do. They tend to get stumped. And so for beginner teachers who are just transitioning to teaching outdoors, I say, just do what you were going to do inside and just try and do it outside. And you'll notice that once you start doing that, you become more confident, more capable at making decisions, become more confident, um, and then everything else sort of emerges from that.
0: Yeah. So uh, this is one that I've already kind of spoken about a little bit on the podcast, and this is one that for me always seemed like a a really easy transition into kind of taking that first step into bringing a class outside you know i think math for some people is a little bit less obvious but in terms of writing skills you discuss nature journals as kind of a way to include writing skills in ela and such things into like an outdoor classroom how do you suggest using nature journals because you also caution teachers about using them or there are certain kind of things about nature journals that could become a barrier.
1: Yeah, so we use Nature Journals for observations and for writing down their wonders that they want to research later. Um, A lot of children enjoy quiet sketching. Um, So it's a great transition tool for teaching to the outdoor classroom because a lot of teachers feel like they need some kind of paper and pencil in order to legitimize the learning that they're doing outdoors. Um, So I do recommend them. We do use them. We use them with clipboards um, and they're always available to students. But uh, over the years, I would say I use, them, I use them less and less every year. And this last year, I don't think we use them at all. Um, and the biggest reason I caution people about them, particularly with young children, is that for children for whom writing is a barrier inside the classroom, that written output is going to continue to be a barrier outside the classroom. And so if I bring a worksheet about plants uh, outside... I'm sort of defeating the point of being outside, which is to sort of stoke and nurture that wonder and curiosity and joy of learning. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, It's far better to take that sunflower and let the kids sort of pick it apart at the table than to give them a worksheet on a sunflower and have them do a labeled diagram about it. Right. So we can, that sort of hands on learning can be hampered with journaling. Um, So it's really nature journals are important as a tool um, but as long as they're not being, it's not the only tool that you're using outdoors. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I make them available. Uh, a lot of, a lot of our art gets done in the journal, so it's all collected in one place. Um, sometimes when children want to record the stories that they've been working on, we use loose parts a lot. Um, mm. some children want to take that writing process into the recording stage. Uh, and so we'll use them for that. But, um, yeah, they're they're good for kids who want to use them, but yeah. I think they can be problematic if they are uh, enforced in use because it does tend to make the learning less equitable outdoors for some of our students who, for whom that writing is a challenge.
0: Yeah, well, simply you know taking the same activity outdoors doesn't remove the challenge. In fact, it probably makes it more challenging.
1: That's right, and it does sort of diminish the the point of being outside although I do for new teachers who are just learning to transition outdoors I say give yourself lots of permission to use those worksheets to go outside like if you feel it's better to be outside with a worksheet than to be inside with a worksheet right right yeah um so I'm not an advocate for worksheets (laughs) at all but if they are that sort of transition tool for teachers that gets them outside then that's the way it is and Yeah. And so and you'll find once you get out there, if you're new to it, that um, you start letting that go. You start realizing that uh, we use a lot of pedagogical narration and documentation and uh, we have other ways of assessing learning outdoors that don't rely on children writing in notebooks.
0: So your next tip for me was probably at least it seemed intuitively the most crucial for me. And you, you said to practice entry and exit routines. How do you go about practicing entry and exit routines short of just like taking time to enter and exit the building?
1: Yeah, so in elementary school, um, everything is routine, right? So when we get, um, we have four kindergarten classes usually every year that we're working with, and every year I forget how they You know, they don't know anything about sort of the system (laughs) of school, right? And so, like any classroom space, an outdoor classroom has routines and expectations that sort of distinguish it, right, from just the unstructured play of recess. So, Mm -hmm. um, what you have to do is sort of teach kids how to line up, how to enter the space, um, so that you can just like define that as a place of learning that is different from a space of unstructured play. So, um, which, and we do both actually in our outdoor classroom. We, we, but when we sit them down at the beginning of the, uh, our time together, we try to set an intention for what our time together will cover. Um, and then they are free to explore and wonder and go play if that's mm-hmm. the way that the learning goes. Um, but ultimately in the blog post where I write a lot about is that, um, routines, especially with young children, tend to take many, many days. And so anybody who's listening, who has taught kindergarten or grade one or grade two, um, they know it takes till about the end of September to get all of your students sort of marching to the beat of your drum and you've Mm -hmm. got your own routines and you've got all of your your, um, sort of classroom expectations in place. Um, And so if this practicing of entry and exit routines is important because if you only go and visit Your outdoor space, like on a forest Friday or a wilderness Wednesday, and assuming it takes these 21 days to make a habit, Mm -hmm. you know, if you go once a week, it's going to take 21 weeks before everybody settles down. And one of the sort of pushback sometimes I hear from teachers is that classroom management is challenging when they're teaching outdoors. And the reality is it's actually easier outside, but what they're experiencing is a lack of time spent in the outdoor classroom. So if you're only going out once a week, the kids are associating being outdoors with recess. And so what you have to do is sort of practice that we're sitting down, even if it's just to talk for five minutes and then they go to recess after that, that entry into that space. And that we're going to have a conversation and this is a place of learning. Just like when we go into the library at the school, we don't like run in the library and start climbing on tables and jumping off book stacks, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's expectations about how we enter a library, right? And then there's lots of choice embedded in library time or in the gym. We don't like everybody doesn't go screaming wild into the gym and jumping off everything. And nobody's like, you come in, we set our intention. And then there's lots of screaming and yelling and jumping. that happens after, (laughs) but we sit down and we, are in a community. So we have a circle in our outdoor classroom where we sit and we practice those entry routines. So typically I recommend that teachers do that at least once a day, that they go into that space, even if it's only for five minutes, because then for the rest of the year, it's just another space of learning. It's just another shared learning space in your school. So it's just like your computer lab or your library or gymnasium or any other place where you share learning in your school, your garden or your outdoor classroom is just now another shared space of learning and kids know how to enter it and know how to settle in to listening so that they can use it as a, as a, as a space that you need it to be.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm not going to lie, Megan, that was just like a mind blown moment for me there when you when you said, you know, like we don't even think about it. But for the for the kids, outdoors equals recess. Mm -hmm. And I think we neglect how much practice and how many habit, like how many years worth of practice goes into, like you said, computer lab routines or library routines or, Mm -hmm. you know, cafeteria routines. And we just, we only see the end product, right? We get the kids, at least in high school, for me, I'm super guilty of this. I get the kids and they just kind of like have this intuitive understanding of this is how I behave when I enter the library. They just like a flick, you know, they flick a switch and all of a sudden they just like enter this different mode. I haven't had to put in that time practicing. So, wow. I mean, that, that, that just like blew my mind to, to, to basically take them. And, I, and I'm fortunate, I, I teach outdoors, red, so I am outside every day. So we quickly acquire that routine. But if I were to take my science course out, for one day, which I have done for labs, uh, I definitely feel the difference. They're not used to learning in that context. So wow, that was like, yeah, just totally mind blown there. I, you know, it, it was right there, but you never think of it that way. So
1: Yeah, time is that. definitely the magic ingredient. It's the most important part of learning outside is spending time in that space.
0: Yeah. Now you talk about reallocating field trip funds. And now this one, I'm going to ask you to explain because like my program is particular. We charge kids a certain amount for field trips. And like, I literally cannot charge kids a penny for anything that isn't being used for specifically a field trip. Now I understand that this is going to be different for different school divisions, different jurisdictions, but you talk about reallocating field trip funds. How has this worked for you?
1: Yeah. So often um, a teacher will plan maybe two or three field trips throughout the school year. And if it's a teacher who's particularly interested in connecting, like when you go back to your why, like why do you wanna teach outdoors for lots of teachers? uh, It's about creating environmental stewards. Some teachers it's about, um, you know, enhancing children's environmental literacies. Like there's lots of reasons why teachers wanna go outdoors. And so the field trips that they're planning are often reflecting their priorities as an educator and and the spaces and places that they wanna connect children to. And so when, um, so for example, uh, if somebody wanted to uh, do a field trip to maybe Science World or to one of these big sort of field trip hubs that we have in the Lower Mainland, which are amazing field trips, we have all kinds of botanical gardens that people can visit with their classes, and we have um, nature parks that you can go to, and there's tons of places that you can go, which are amazing. Mm -hmm. Um, But they cost a lot of money, first of all, the entrance fees are quite expensive. And Also, even if you can get like a free field trip or you can get grants for those, the buses are very expensive.
0: hundred percent. My most expensive, like I'm not, (laughs) I take the kids hiking uh, and I have to transport. I have to shuttle them an hour and a half out of the city to get to like a half decent hiking location. And that eats up probably 70% of my budget for the term.
1: Yeah. And so secondary is different than elementary. Like with secondary students, I think there's a greater threshold to justify that kind of going out into the world. Mm -hmm. But with young children, and I'm talking kindergarten to grade four or five, um, I really think that if we reallocate the way that we spend our field trip funds and put them into bettering our school gardens or bettering our Mm schoolyards so that we can connect children to place that is local, Mm -hmm. um, we tend to attach children to place more readily when that, remember we talked about that magic elixir of time, right? So when children go on a one-off field trip to a place that they will probably never go again, it's like a distant memory and you've spent maybe two or $300 of your classroom money Mm -hmm. on a field trip that kids might write a paragraph about later or a couple of sentences, or it'll be like, they totally forgot about it. But if every class in the school put that two or $300 and invest it into like a school garden, for example, or invest it into infrastructure of loose parts for play on the playground, like everybody always says, Oh, there's no money for this. There's no money for that. Well, there is, we just have to be a little more creative about how we use it. So um, that reallocation of field trip funds can go a long way uh, in terms of buying tarps and buying go bags and buying like a wagon to carry your supplies or build a shed or buy those clipboards for your nature journals, or even, you know, going back to my tip about uh, preparing for all weather learning. One of the things I didn't talk about when we were back on that tip was um, we have a lending library. So we have like heaps and heaps of boots and pants and jackets. And that's for like lots of our families just can't afford to buy new gear every year. So they can come and take what they need and their kids can take it for the whole year Lots of times kids take something for like a month and then they outgrow it. Um, And the only expectation around the lending library is that people return it. So, Mm -hmm. you know, to be fair, I get more than I give by far. But sometimes people are using their field trip funds to sort of beef up their lending library so that they've got more rain boots. They've got more rain pants or snow pants or whatever your climate conditions are. So that you've got something for everybody to wear so you can be outside because it is a huge barrier. If kids aren't dressed for the climate that you're in, Totally, it really limits the <laughs> amount of time that you can be outside. Yeah, so, Megan,
0: I'm in Winnipeg and when I teach yeah. outdoor ed in the dead of winter and it's minus 40 and I have a kid who forgot their mitts, that's a that's like game over. It's yeah, not it's even hazardous. like, oh, tough it out. No. No, 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 no. We're talking about losing fingers here. Yeah. So yeah. that's a That's a huge component of of being able to to do that. I find this tip super interesting, especially now, because nobody knows what school is going to look like in the fall. Yeah, nobody's going anywhere for a while. (laughs) Exactly. So field trips are kind of kiboshed anyway. So I'm thinking, wow, this might be a really interesting time to really look at our budgets and figure out where can we reallocate this money? Like you said, the money is there. It's just there's a finite amount of it. Where are you spending it?
1: Yeah. And so things like resources, like libraries get budgets. Like that's another reason why I call what I do the outdoor classroom because classrooms politically and strategically get resources, right? They have budgets. Um, And so we get an allocated fund every year to spend on, you know, our classroom space. It is a classroom. So it's just I re- just thinking about like attending all those budget meetings and, you know, working those relationships and making sure that your needs aren't being forgotten. And I think it's particularly um, important going forward in a post-COVID world that we are paying attention to our outdoor spaces so mm-hmm. that everybody feels comfortable learning outdoors. Because I think it's it's going to be many, many years before even if we go back to what school used to look like. Right. So and in some ways
0: it would be a shame if it did. Right. Like if you don't take the opportunity to make changes and to reevaluate, then I think it's an opportunity lost. So you, you talk about embracing an emergent curriculum. This is new, perhaps jargon for me. I don't know exactly what the emergent curriculum is. Do you mind kind of enlightening me? (laughs)
1: So it just simply means that as an educator, you're open to facilitating learning that's responsive to your students' interests. So if, for example, um, I can talk about examples of it, like a child might turn over a log outside and Mm -hmm. underneath the log, there might be a nice little cache of slug eggs. So in my day plan, I did not plan to turn to talk about the life cycle of slugs, right? Mm-hmm. That wasn't in my day plan for the day. But we've turned over a log and here we are. We have a really rich, teachable moment um, to discuss the life cycle of slugs, right? And so this emergent learning, um, is like this, it's a phenomenon that emerges when you participate in your world, right? It's anywhere you go, there's, we always talk about these teachable moments with children and, and that's really what the emergent curriculum is, right? Um, as a, if you're a skilled practitioner of an emergent curriculum, you, you see what the children's interests are and then you Mm -hmm. sort of weave in your required curricular content to sort of match what the children are seeing. And so Um, I have a plan when I go outside, I know what I want to teach that day, but I'm super open to letting it go off the rails and follow the interests of children. And then it's interesting because at the end of the term, like we will, um, there's two of us actually that teach outdoor at my school now. So we will provide comments for teachers to put in their report cards around the learning that's happened in the outdoor classroom. Mm -hmm. And when we do that and we go through what our short and long-term long range plans were for the term, we realized we actually taught, not only did we teach everything we thought we were going to teach, but we taught so much more and we have so much more to report on because we're really just open to the um, sort of more than human world allowing um, that learning to emerge and not us being the sole purveyors of knowledge, right? Like the land, right. the plants, the insects, all that biodiversity in our schoolyard and our garden has something to teach. And so we're really open to just stepping back and letting that learning happen and letting kids really become curious and joyful in their learning. And that's what an emergent curriculum is.
0: Yeah. I think that a lot of that comes with, like you said, confidence, right? Maybe start with the <laughs> nature journal, but understand that things will go as they go. You kind of follow that ebb and flow of interest for different things as they arise. Um, and I think it really leads beautifully into what is your 10th tip on the list. Now, granted, I did skip one, which I'll go back to But your 10th <laughs> tip is to trust your students. And I think this is so difficult for a lot of teachers, uh, let alone out of the classroom, but in the classroom even to kind of let go of some of that power, some of that, um, authority, maybe, um, how, how do you, how do you, t- I mean, I, I, I know this, it, I'm in my, I guess, arguably 10th year of teaching now, and a lot of it comes with experience. But for a new teacher, somebody who just wants to get outside, how do you tell them to trust their students?
1: Yeah, so I think, I mean, relationships are everything in teaching, right? Um, And when you're outside, you've got other relationships to manage. You've got relationships with your climate and relationships with the We talked about that biodiversity of life. You've got like, Mm -hmm. we've got coyotes and we've got slugs and we've got, you know, eagles flying overhead. We've got all these sort of things happening. Um, And so just trusting that students are going to be reasonable in that space rather than giving a lot of sort of draconian rules before you go outdoors about what you don't want to see sort of co-creating this list of um, behaviors that we do want to see, right. And what's going to allow this to happen. And I think if we, like, I think if a teacher sits down with kids and says, look, this is important to me that we go outside, and these are the reasons why I want to go outside, getting clear on your why, and this is why it's good for you, and explaining that to kids. And then, like, talking about what you need as a teacher to feel safe taking them outdoors. Um, most kids, I mean, I, in 22 years I've been teaching, I can count on one hand the number of kids where it really hasn't been a better place for them being outdoors yeah. 99% of the kids I've taught over decades really do not only better outdoors, they thrive outdoors in terms of their social, emotional learning, their academic and cognitive abilities. Everything about being outdoors is better. And so um, there's very, very few exceptions to that, even though there are some exceptions and we, we could talk about those, but um, telling kids what you need to feel safe outside and mm-hmm. then trusting that they are going to make decent decisions that allow that learning to continue. Um, yeah. And starting do, you mind, small. do you mind
0: elaborating on a little bit of those exceptions? Because you've been at this twice as long as I have. And I want to know, you know, when you have one of those exceptions, one of those cases where it really doesn't work, how have you managed that?
1: Yeah. So we've had students that would be um, um, on a spectrum And for them being in the openness, the wide open space of the garden, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, like a small farm space, it's too uh, open. There's not enough um, structure. It's too unpredictable. So for some of our students that need really clear, predictable, um, want to know what's happening first, then next, finally, they need that sort of social story and structure. um, That space has been really hard for them to... Thrive and adapt in. So, for those kids, what we ended up doing was we renovated, we had a courtyard in our school that was nice and tight. It had, you know, four walls with doors, um, and we renovated that to sort of replicate. We put the log circle in there, like we had in the outdoor classroom. We have some small little planters in there. Um, and so, with those children, Sometimes we'll go into that space, which is still outdoors. It's still open air, um, but it feels it feels safer for some of those kids to not be so that the 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 wideness of it is a little overwhelming for some kids. Um, And that's okay. So we have these these courtyard space that we can use. Um, like I said, in all my years, I can count on one hand, the number of kids that have really, and sometimes that's not always that case. It just might be this week. It might be this month that they're feeling a little overwhelmed in that space. So we're going to go into the courtyard for the next few weeks and work in there and learn in there. Um, and just sort of respond to what that child needs. Um, sometimes we have very young children that will run right? Because mm-hmm. they're very overwhelmed and they will just, they, they're they runners. So <laughs> until we've got that, that sort of relationship in place where they can trust that this is a safe place, that this is interesting for them. Um, and we can trust that they're not going to go running down the road into traffic. Um, sometimes the courtyard is, and so having those alternate spaces that are a little more confined can be helpful. Yeah. Just to put um, it in perspective small. here, do yeah. you
0: have, like, what's your ratios? Like, what's your ratio of teacher to students?
1: It's me with, um, anywhere from 18 to 27 students.
0: Okay. So just for the listeners to understand kind of what the, the ratio you know. is here, because usually I think that, if that you
1: have a child, if you have a child that's has any sort of, um, um, significant learning challenges or differences, they'll come with some sort of um, assistance. There will usually be another adult with them. So that does make things easier um, in terms of safety for the group, right? Because if I'm going out with a lot of kindergartens, if I'm going out with 18 or 24 and five-year-olds for the first time, Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of like routines and ritual and how do we enter the space and how do we, it's, well, anybody who's taught kindergarten knows. It's just, it takes a month just to get them to sit down, <laughs> right? It takes a long time <laughs> to get them to the place where now we're ready to read a story and now we're ready to do something, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: You're bringing back this old trauma of when I taught kindergarten <laughs> phys ed and trying to get them to sit around the circle in the middle of the gym. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it takes yeah. a while, but it happens. It always happens. And it's, it's always sort of this sweet spot. That's about, you know, 20 to 25 days of school where they just settle in and then it happens. Right. But yeah, um, yeah. you just have to sort of work through and persevere through the through
0: the chaos. I'm a firm believer in co-creating rules. I started doing that in my classroom about five years ago, and I found that the adherence to the rules was so much greater because of the investment of the of the students in those same rules, which they helped create. Yeah. And um, you know, like I, I've never once been let down even by the rules that they come up with. In fact, more often than not, they're stricter than I would be. Yeah. So I, I think that's a really great way to, to approach that. Now, you also mentioned that, that interior courtyard, that space. I'm curious, for a lot of schools who don't have access to the same kind of acreage, the same land mass that you have access to, what's the smallest garden that you think you could work with, with a classroom? Because I mean, it takes more than just one you know, pot. If you have one tomato growing in a pot, that's not going to be sufficient, I don't think. But maybe I'm wrong. What, what's the yeah. smallest... I would say just something
1: in your windowsill, right? Like there's a lot. I I really think one pot is enough. The size of the garden is not really what's important. It's more the mindset and like this framework of thinking about where learning happens, right? Yeah. So a garden is really just a lens for learning, right? Everybody has sort of their their lens or their ways that they're sort of approaching how they teach students. Um, The garden is just a lens that I use that I think is a really helpful lens for teaching across the curriculum. I think anything that we want to teach kids. Kids from kindergarten through grade seven can be taught in a garden. That is just a really nice metaphor for learning and growth and development. Um, But yeah, really, if you just have a bag of potatoes outside your classroom door, that's also totally sufficient. There's so much learning that can happen in that. And I work with a lot of urban schools as well. And I think even just going out into like your parking lot and looking at the weeds and the cracks of the pavement Mm -hmm. is a connection to nature. Like there's so much happening in the cracks of the pavement like you could be (laughs) looking at all the ants or looking at like finding and just sitting and following um following an insect right just watching a spider move or watching one of these sort of like you know the decomposing pill bugs or wood lice some people call them and Mm -hmm. just watching those do their work and watching the ants and Um, it really doesn't have to be this beautiful, like forest school, people get super frustrated with forest school because it's so beautiful and it's so spectacular and you've got these magnificent forests that children are skipping through, right? You don't need that to have a really great connection to place. You just need to have um, a a disposition that learning doesn't have to be happening inside, that it can happen outdoors. And so, you know, like I said, those cracks in the pavement, that one, like bag life of potatoes. Is, growing. Life is
0: persistent. You can yeah. find a surprising amount of life in the cracks of even just the patio yeah. pavers outside my house.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And even like out on the playground, like looking underneath stuff and looking at what's happening under, like just looking at things from different perspectives. Like there's so much happening and mm-hmm. there's so many weeds in the grass that you can just go look at. And all those sort of um, edges of our schoolyards are really rich learning spaces as well. There's like little like ditches and there's hills and there's like like shrubs and there's Mm. thistles and there's interesting things that we can just go get close to and explore and examine. Right.
0: Yeah. So the, the the last tip, it's not the last tip on your list, but anyways, the last tip I wanted to discuss today was uh, you said about developing a professional learning network and a community of like-minded educators. And I'm not going to lie, Megan, that's a part of the reason why I I actually began this podcast. This is something that I've been thinking about for a long time and I've met, uh, well, I haven't met, but I've, I've connected with a ton of different people Uh, who have reached out to me from this, and it's been a super enriching experience. Um, Can you suggest other resources, other networks that you're aware of that some of the listeners might not know about, but that might be interested in joining?
1: Yeah, so I think that PLN is really important no matter what your lens is that you're teaching with. So um, lots of science teachers will have a professional learning network or math teachers will have their cohort or kindergarten teachers will gather together at conferences and learn um, techniques and methods that are specific to their teaching context. And that learning professional learning network is really, I think enriches your own practice. And I think your own satisfaction with your job Um, but it, it, when you're teaching outdoors, because sometimes there can be, like, for a lot of years, I have to tell you, everybody thought I was the crazy lady that taught in the rain, right? Um, there was there was a, a lot of were people looking wrong, at me. Were they
0: wrong, really? Let's be serious. I mean, well, I have one of to us say, is a little bit off our rocker.
1: Yeah, but like post-COVID, even like the my biggest critics are now sort of like, oh, actually, maybe uh, we will go teach outside, <laughs> right? So, you know, I you know this it's good teaching outside is good but it's good to be surrounded by people who can understand the same sort of barriers and challenges and you can work through some of those together um in the school garden space there's lots of um people who can help you with challenges that are specific to your climate right so mm-hmm. even though i would say i'm a school garden expert in bc i'm probably not a school garden expert in winnipeg right because i don't really know that growing conditions there and yeah, so, don't try um, growing grapes here Yeah. Right. (laughs) So there's going to be some nuances that you want to talk to the people who you want to talk to your elders. You want to talk to your local experts, right. And connect with those people that know about the land and know what grows there. So like in BC, and I don't know about other provinces, I'm sure this exists in other provinces, but in BC, the BCTF is our provincial union, but We also have what are called um, um, PSAs, which are Provincial Specialist Associations. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm a member of IPSA, which is the Environmental Educators PSA. um, And that's a provincial group, a body that is from K to 12. Um, all teachers who are interested in environmental education in any sort of facet of that. So a lot of us there are really interested just in outdoor play, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of us are interested in outdoor education. Um, A lot of us are really interested in environmental literacies. So, and place consciousness and place-based learning. And there's all different kinds of facets of it, but we all come together under this umbrella of environmental education. And so uh, we get support through the BCTF. We have, um, we ha- like we can have a, a voice at the table when, you know, when they're looking for feedback on policy decisions at the ministry level, those kinds of advocacy positions are really important, yeah. not only um, at your, like your district level, but also at your provincial level. So I do recommend you get involved in your local uh, groups, but also at your provincial groups to sort of see what's happening across the province. Um, If you're close to Alberta, um, sort of Eastern British Columbia, there's CBEan, which is the Columbia Basin Environmental Educators Network, um, and they do a lot of great work in the Columbia Basin. Mm -hmm. Um, There's C2CBC, which is Classrooms to Communities, um, which is a BC education network. Um, Across Canada, there's ECOM, which is the Canadian Network for Environmental Education. Um anybody who's interested in outdoor play there's a great um network called Play-Doh Net, which is a part of Outdoor Play Canada in Ontario um uh, the Child Nature Alliance so the chi- um Four School Canada they do a lot of work in this space as well mm-hmm. um this Green Teacher magazine has some really great resources as they have a website and they have a magazine um there's outdoor classroom day a lot of this work in the UK there's lots of really interesting um, Groups on Facebook that you can connect with that are teaching outdoors. There's a whole bunch of tons of Facebook groups on just teaching math outside, for example, right? Yeah. Um, so, and so, so anybody
0: uh, who does a little bit of digging should be able to find something.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. And I've got links to all those on my, that post. Um, There's lots of links to all those so people can, can connect to those groups if they want. And then um, on my, I have a Facebook group room to play.ca. So we connect on Facebook there on Twitter. Twitter is a great professional learning network. If you're not on Twitter, I highly recommend it. I think it's one of the, easiest places to connect with your PLN Mm -hmm. Um, Edu Twitter is a big deal there's a lot of great people there with a lot of really good information Um, it's free there's lots of Twitter chats based on your interests Uh, different people host different Twitter chats Um, so I'm room to play on Twitter um, and Instagram I'm on uh, both of those platforms at room to play so yeah you can connect with people and then through people you connect with people and then before you know it you've got a network
0: yeah Excellent. Megan, thank you so much for taking some time out. I thought this was a super enriching talk for me and I know it will be for a ton of listeners also. So thank you so much for taking some time to spend with us.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Following the interview, I discovered while digging around on the web that you can certify a home, community, or school garden as a certified wildlife habitat with the National Wildlife Federation or the Canadian Wildlife Federation. The criteria are straightforward. The habitat must have food, water, cover, and places to raise young. These are all achievable goals for a small school garden and it struck me that this might be something that interests you and your class as a tangible objective, a small bit of recognition for the hours of work and planning that have gone into the garden. You can download a checklist from the NWF website to which I've included links in the episode notes. I've also included links to the resources discussed during the interview. I understand that this was a longer-than-normal episode, but the discussion was just so stimulating, I, I couldn't cut it short. And I'm really hoping that you enjoyed and that you got a lot out of the discussion. You may have to listen to it more than once over, as I did, to kind of pick out the gems that Megan dropped. But um, I just felt that it was such a great interview. I couldn't cut anything out of it. That being said, I'm also very thankful for the time that you have given me uh, in, in listening to this interview. So thanks for listening to Disconnect, the Outdoor Education Podcast help me continue producing these episodes by subscribing and telling a friend about the show. If you know someone doing something noteworthy, or if you want to share a personal story, I would truly love to hear about it. I can be reached at disconnectpodcast at protonmail.com. As I've mentioned, I put links for all the resources discussed in the episode notes, including a link to the song that you're hearing right now called Multiverse by Ketza, Um, which you heard uh, also at the beginning of the episode uh, and used under the Creative Commons license. Helping you reignite senses in your students. I'm Joël Chavière. See you next time.